Welcome to Courage and Spice. This is the podcast for humans with self-doubt. I'll share evidence-based resources and teach you proven coaching tools to help you transcend your self-doubt. I'm Sass Petherick, a master coach and founder of the Self-Belief Coaching Academy. I'm so glad you're here. Let's do this. Super fun title, super fun episode today. I wrote in a recent newsletter that a really beloved member of my extended family died recently. And in that same week, my father-in-law has gone into a specialist dementia care unit. And in a kind of loosely related way, my team are managing the retirement of some coaching programs that I just won't be offering again and I know that for so many of us there is grief and loss and endings in all shapes and forms that are with us right now and it doesn't really seem to matter if endings are complex or ambiguous or even chosen loss can be hard right it's no wonder we resist endings we aren't very good at them There are few shared rituals or language, even for funerals. Here in the UK, we take a couple of hours off work to choke back emotion and stand in a church that the person really attended. And that's finished by drinking too much in a local pub, eating a buffet of slightly stale egg salad sandwiches. (laughs) Everything is really muted, especially emotion. This is the end of 2021 we're entering that phase of the of the year and right now there's almost 150,000 families in the UK grieving the deaths of family members from COVID. About one in four people are looking to change their job in the next 12 months and divorces and separations have massively increased over this pandemic period. So grief, loss and endings is just with us right now. And I thought, because I guess this is touching me personally at the moment, I thought we should just talk more about it. And I have some suggestions for how we can navigate those endings in ways that just might feel nurturing. That's my hope, is that this episode helps you feel less alone and more supported if you are experiencing grief, loss and endings right now. So I really want to start by just saying that I believe all grief is legitimate. I think loss exists on a massive spectrum and our grief is associated with that. But every experience of grief is legitimate. We often in our Western culture only allow grief to be present when it's associated with the death of a loved one, a close family member. But any significant loss can lead to grief. This could be in response to losing a job, after divorce or separation, even if you've chosen that. Sometimes grief is caused by our kids moving into the next phase of their lives. Grief can come up after the loss of a limb or a bodily function. We're now starting to acknowledge the the depth of grief that is caused by miscarriage. Surprisingly common occurrence, but up until recently quite little discussed source of grief. 
I've seen grief that comes up in the loss of opportunities or dreams when we just reach a stage or an age where we just think that's just no longer something that's possible for me or something that I want. And I've seen grief come up at the end of shared experiences, coaching programs and particularly retreats where I found so many people experience a huge range of feelings around something ending. But there's also some real complexity to grief when a parent or a loved one becomes diagnosed with something. There is a sense of grieving even though we're not directly impacted. And I know our family's experience of Alzheimer's was so painful because it's a kind of ambiguous loss where the person is still alive but is no longer present to us. And I have a friend whose teenage son is trans and though she as a mother is utterly supportive of her son becoming who he wants to be, she's also managing her own grief at the loss of who she thought her son would be. Grief is a myriad of contexts and situations. It doesn't have to be about death. It doesn't even have to involve another person. It doesn't have to be about anything that is big or significant. Basically, if you lose something that's valuable to you, it's very natural to experience grief. And there are lots of possible symptoms that might be occurring on different levels. So we can experience emotional symptoms like shock or surprise, confusion, especially if that loss is sudden or unexpected. Sadness is probably the most commonly associated emotion when it comes to grief, but it can also be accompanied by loneliness, despair, nostalgia, anguish. Anger is another really common emotional symptom and I think this can surprise people because it seems to sort of well up out of nowhere and it can often be misdirected. And guilt can frequently come up alongside grief, particularly if there are things that have been left unsaid or undone or amends that weren't able to be made. It's so normal to feel anxious, worried, helpless. And there are mental symptoms of grief as well rumination where we keep going over perceived mistakes or missteps that maybe led to that loss how we could have changed something that might have happened and this can cause an additional emotional distress on top of the normal experience of grief and worry is very common during grief you may find yourself worrying about what life will be like who you will be without the person or thing that you have lost. We can also experience a lot of memories that can seem intrusive during a grieving process. It's really normal to have all sorts of people or places, even smells, kind of activate memories of the person who's passed away or some other loss. I remember for years after my mum died, I couldn't walk through the duty-free perfume place because I had this experience where someone just squirted mum's perfume at me randomly. I didn't even ask for it. And it just sent me into this, you know, really difficult experience of grief. It just kind of almost felt like it was attacking me. And fantasizing is also a way of those grief processes 
being expressed, being experienced. We can fantasize about what life would be like if the person or the thing hadn't been lost. We fantasize about some other ideal perfect outcome. Now these symptoms can circle around us. There are of course stages of grief which people will probably recognize from Kubler-Ross's book Um, and she talked about five main stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And I think this is quite helpful for kind of normalizing and understanding how most people typically experience grief. But I know from my own experience and and just the research that's been undertaken in the last 50 years since Kubler-Ross's book, Death and Dying, was published, it suggests that not every person goes through every stage and hardly any of us go through them in a linear fashion. It can be more helpful, I think, to know that whatever has activated your grief, the what you're experiencing immediately after the loss is going to look different in a week, a month, a year, a decade later. And that's because Grief is a developmental process. It's something that's fluid and dynamic and it depends on all sorts of factors from your personality and the levels of support you have to if this is your first grief rodeo. So there's no one correct way to experience grief. You don't know if you're doing it right. If you're having grief, you're doing it right. And you can expect that your grief will change and evolve as you do. One of my favorite books ever is a book called Transitions by William Bridges, and it's over 40 years old, but Bill writes so beautifully and in such a deceptively simple way about big life transitions. And he talks about how every transition ends with a new beginning. And I think this is so helpful to hold on to when we're experiencing grief. Loss can mark the beginning of new chapters or stages in our lives. And while that transition is super rocky and often painful, that can also be the force that helps us to change and grow and adapt. So it won't surprise you to know that I don't think there is any point in trying to get a gift out of grief, but sometimes that just happens organically. People who experience a lot of grief after losing a job almost have to come to terms with how much of their identity is tied up in this one dimension of who they are. And so there is this invitation to expand and develop their interests and abilities or just move on to a role that suits who they are now. And similarly, I know personally, as painful as divorce can be, for so many of us, it's an invitation to heal relationship patterns and dynamics that might be decades old. And it means that the next person who loves you, and there is always a next person, is going to get the benefit of you saying yes to the invitation to look at who you are in relationships. I just wanted to talk a little bit about how I've learned and what the research is telling me about doing endings from a healthy adult self place. And I've got a few just notes here that I think might help. And the first is to really allow yourself to acknowledge 
that something is ending. If you can just let yourself notice that. So many of us grew up in homes where a loss happened and nobody talked about it. Nobody said, this is what is going on and it's okay to feel what you feel about it. And I remember personally when my beloved granddad Harry died, he'd had a brain tumor and chemo and all that jazz and it was terminal and he died and it was expected, I guess, by the adults and the family. But I was nine, so I didn't really have a Scooby-Doo clue what was going on. And I remember people talking to me like I should have known because he'd been so unwell. And then me and my little brother weren't allowed to go to the funeral because everyone thought it would be too sad for kids. (laughs) So I had this really confusing experience where no one really wanted to acknowledge anything. No one asked me how I was feeling. That might be something that you can relate to where endings haven't been acknowledged when you were growing up. And as a grown up, we can do this for ourselves. And I found it's really quite simple and complex. And it's just about allowing yourself to notice something is ending and checking in with how you feel. Just allowing yourself to feel what comes up. Offering yourself what it is you need in that moment. And this just allows you to acknowledge something's ending. I'm having some feelings. I've got some needs and I can give those to myself. It's incredibly powerful. The second thing I would offer is to legitimize any experience of grief. Each of us have an innately subjective and personal experience of grief and you get to have that. This may not mean that you're always feeling sad (laughs) and that's because grief isn't technically an emotion. It's more of a, a category of experience that represents emotions but also thoughts and memories and physical sensations. I can remember after my master's program finished and for months I just felt restless and irritable. I missed my classmates. I missed the rhythm of driving to Oxford every Saturday and the sense of purpose and achievement, the smell of the library. And how would I know I was worthy as a human if someone wasn't regularly giving me grades, (laughs) right? And now I can see that this was a form of grief. It just didn't fit the stereotype, one of the strongest of which is crying a lot. And while it's common to cry, it's not a requirement for healthy grieving. The only time that you might want to question your experience of grief is if you feel like you're deliberately avoiding something. If you're avoiding your grief or avoiding some feeling, shoving it down, that might be worth examining more closely. The third thing is to take care of you. So a totally underappreciated part of healthy grieving is taking care of yourself. And this is where self-care really needs to be taken seriously. When loss and grief strike, your life is often thrown into a bit of disarray and disorder. It could be legal or logistical issues, social, emotional changes. Grief can be quite chaotic. And I think understandably, amid all of this confusion, we can let go of really healthy habits and routines that normally support us. 
It's often at the times when we're the least likely to feel capable of looking after ourselves when we really need to do it. And I can remember walking into a pharmacy in West London about three weeks after my ex-husband left me a note to say our marriage was over. (laughs) That was how he did that. And it was in the middle of January, which is bitterly cold winter. I'd just come back from a couple of weeks in Australia, which had been a kind of mercy mission to just be with my family while I was trying to figure out what had happened and process the shock of it all. And I was so jet lagged and I felt so raw. It was like I didn't have any skin on. And I started to explain what was going on and I was getting quite anxious and upset. And this very kind pharmacist just led me into a little booth and took my hands and said, you're going to be okay. And she prescribed me with some valerian tea just to help me sleep. She said, this is what you need right now. And I just remember thinking, this tastes like dirt. What do you mean? But she was so right because sleep is key. It's everything. So sleep and food and showering and getting outside for a walk, even if it's just around the block. And I I know I sound just like my gran, but if we don't do these things, it makes it so much harder to navigate all the other challenges of grief and the grieving process, the ending process. The fourth thing I'd offer is to grieve intentionally. Now, this one might sound strange, but it's based on a really key idea about our emotions. They want to be felt, right? The purpose of our feelings is to feel them. So everything we shove down or deny, what we resist, it will persist. I know that's a really annoying cliche, but it is true. And this is because our mind will see us fighting with or running away from something, including an emotion like sadness. So it learns to see that thing as a threat. And that means the next time something activates your sadness, for example, your mind is going to be on high alert. It increases your anxiety and overall level of of emotional sensitivity. But we can flip this idea on its head, right? Which leads to this counterintuitive solution of deliberately approaching difficult emotions like sadness in order to become more comfortable with them. So while the pain of sadness will be there, it's a lot easier to work through and bear it when it's not also overburdened with fear and shame and frustration and all the other things that come up from when we see our sadness as dangerous. So practically speaking, one of the best things you can do is make time to grieve on purpose. Approach your feelings that are hard to feel really intentionally, maybe even willingly. And I learned this from Dr. Martha Beck, who I thought sounded crazy when she suggested on a coach training call that one of my classmates who was just experiencing a big loss, just wrap herself in a blanket and let the furniture hold her for a while. And I was like, what? (laughs) You're allowed to do that? Like, what about just getting on with things and pushing through it? But of course, dear listener, I was wrong. This is a brilliant tactic. I highly recommend it. Just take 10 minutes out of your evening, write in your journal about what you're feeling, what memories are feeling most acutely sad for you 
make a list of songs, watch movies, any art that makes you cry is a resource. Because when you allow yourself to grieve willingly, to feel grief willingly, it signals to your own mind that what you're experiencing is not bad or dangerous. I think this is probably one of the most powerful and underutilized techniques for being with grief that I know of. And I know it has probably rescued me many, many times over the years. And I've recommended this to so many clients. And when they follow through with it consistently, they've said it just has such a cathartic effect, right? It's like we become a good friend to ourselves that listens compassionately and validates our own grief lets us to have that pain and that suffering, knowing that it's not going to last. Even though we think it will, it never does. And the fifth kind of approach that I would offer to you is to try to resist, wherever possible, comparing your grief to someone else's. And this impulse to compare and contrast with other people's grief is so natural. It's actually a way of creating some safety because we are looking for the knowledge that what we're experiencing isn't completely foreign or mad or outside of the norm. Which means it's not surprising when we find ourselves wishing we could get on with life as quickly as our sister-in-law did, or wondering why our co-worker was so able to bounce back after being laid off and started applying for new jobs straight away. But the act of comparing our grief to that of someone else's and then judging it isn't usually that helpful. And I think the reason for that is that everybody's circumstances, the nature of their loss, how we process our grief is so, so personal. And that means that if the top level details look similar, what's going on underneath is almost impossible to really know. The other thing is that it's usually really invalidating. Baked into most comparison is the subtle evaluation that somehow our grief should look and feel more like someone else's. So we're doing it wrong. And that means that in addition to feeling the grief of your loss, you're also feeling bad about feeling bad. And this is a second layer of emotional pain that will only make it harder and longer to process. Just remind yourself that even though it seems like a really simple comparison, it never is. Grief is complex and complexity doesn't lend itself really well to comparisons. And the last thing I just want to add here is that it is so helpful to try as much as you can to find some pockets of support that make sense to you. Right, so sometimes that's a random stranger pharmacist in a beautiful silk sari who offers a moment of compassion and some really shit tasting tea. But it might be a bereaved spouse's group would really help you. It might be a therapist. Deliberately talking about and sharing your grief can be helpful for some of us. Now equally, if you're a bit like me, you might find the idea of a group grief discussion makes your eyes twitch. So remember there's no right way. You might feel safer to grieve privately and to spend time with people and actually not talk about your grief, your loss, your feelings. 
In fact, this is a great place to start if you're not sure how to start the grieving process or you feel like it's not going well or if you're just not sure how to take care of yourself. This is when you should get back into the book club that you used to enjoy. Multiplayer online gamers go into that fantasy realm. Maybe you want to try something different and volunteer at a food bank or a beach cleanup. Simply being connected is what can help during grief and you don't have to talk about your feelings this doesn't mean you're avoiding them i think unfortunately many people who are experiencing grief feel a kind of social pressure or expectation to talk about it to be sad all the time to kind of fulfill this image of a grieving person but if you feel like this pressure is actually leading you to stay away from people or activities you would normally enjoy you can just let people know that you'd love to hang out you've experienced a loss and you don't really want to talk about it and then your grief process gets to be your own which means how and when you choose to talk about it is up to you so not all loss is the same but all grief is legitimate Grief can be this invitation to offer ourselves more than average levels of compassion, understanding, kindness, rest, care, if only to make the next hour slightly more tolerable. So if you're grieving right now, I really hope this helps you to maybe make sense of it, feel a little less alone, and to just remind yourself that however you're doing this is perfect. I'm sending you all the love. Hey, did you know your self-doubt is not an amorphous cloud of woe and doom? How we experience and respond to self-doubt is really specific and quite personal. More importantly, your self-doubt also makes complete sense. After coaching with hundreds of people over the last decade, I found that there are patterns and themes that show there's always a damn good reason why self-doubt holds us back. And I've developed a model of the 12 different types of self-doubt. If you head over to selfbelief.school to take the archetypes quiz, you'll uncover your self-doubt archetype. I'll send you a beautiful ebook that reveals all the details, including five ways that you can start to interrupt the pattern of your self-doubt today. Selfbelief.school and click on take the archetypes quiz. I hope you enjoy it.